Turn, please, this morning to Acts chapter 13. I've been preaching through John, and yet when I'm out of town, I often return to Acts because I've already preached through Acts, and so I have all of these sermons prepared that I can just use. So you're, you're getting a sermon that I've already preached before, but you should be happy because I picked the good ones to re-preach, right? But because we haven't been going through it, let me give you some background. Um, Barnabas and Saul were set apart by the church at Antioch for the work that God called them to. And then they were sent out to do that work. And up until this passage, Barnabas is clearly the preeminent one in this relationship between Barnabas and Paul. They go together, Barnabas and uh, up until now, Saul. But at this point in the book, Saul becomes the obvious leader in this relationship. His name is changed to Paul, and he begins to really start doing the work of being the apostle to the Gentiles that Jesus called him to himself. So apostle to the Gentiles means uh, that Saul, at the time, had been on the road to Damascus, and you remember the story, he saw the bright light and heard Jesus calling to him, and he repents of his life of persecution of Christians. And the reason that Barnabas is, has been the leader, the, the preeminent one in this relationship, is in part because Barnabas is the one who commends him to the brothers when he returns to Jerusalem. Barnabas is the one that convinces the church to accept him as a true believer rather than as a spy who's just there to look for a way to persecute them. And so, it's, it's, not, it's not until Saul really begins to uh, do the particular work that Jesus gave him to do after uh, his repentance in Damascus, that the, the fact that Saul, soon to be Paul, is an apostle comes out, and that Barnabas is not an apostle. So, apostle means the one that's called directly by Jesus for that, this work, right? And Barnabas is just another Christian, like you and me. Think about that transition for a minute as Barnabas decreases in importance. The importance that Barnabas has had up until now is amazing. But really, the only reason he's included as much as he is in the book of Acts is because of Saul. It's a funny thought. Whenever we think of ourselves as important, we come to find that we're not nearly as important as we think we are, don't we? Well, there's a lot of 
difficulty in going through that kind of a transition. And there's a lot of difficulty in doing the work of an apostle as well. So what we're going to see in this passage is not just that transition, but we're going to see the the start of the, the authority of Paul coming out in a way that we haven't seen it up until this point. And it's difficult maybe for Barnabas to go through this transition, but I think it's much more difficult for us to see what Paul does as he begins to proclaim the good news. The good news doesn't end up sounding quite the way that we would expect as he, as he begins this work. So please stand as we read Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Elymas, or Bar-Jesus, depending on the translation, right? It's funny because it's translated into a different language that we still don't know, right? (laughs) Um, Bar-Jesus is more wicked and dangerous than Simon Magus, a, a man who comes earlier in the book of Acts. And the reason that he's more dangerous is because he was a Jew and he knew much more of the truth. In fact, he is called here a false prophet. And this means that his teaching is more dangerous because it is based on many more true things and twists them in a very subtle way. 
Paul's response is to his attack on the gospel. And his response is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he attacks him with strong name-calling. Just let that sink in for a minute. Of all the things that you're told not to do from, I, I mean, Tate, Liam, how old are you guys? Seven? Have you ever been told not to call people names? Yeah. I mean, we learned this pretty young, right? We already know by the time we're six, seven years old, you're not allowed to call people names. And yet, here comes Saul, who becomes Paul. And Paul responds with this intense name-calling. He says he's deceptive, like the serpent in the garden. He says he's fraudulent. He says he's an enemy of all righteousness. He calls him a son of the devil. And then he truly prophesies, Paul does, this man's temporary blindness. So all of this response that comes from Paul is a response that is appropriate. We've got to to establish that fact first. That's why I say that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he speaks this way, This is, in a sense, altogether one response, and it ends with a prophecy which immediately comes true. There is no separating out Paul's response to part true and and part false, or part good and part bad in this instance. Do you see that? It's all true, just in the same way that he says that Bar-Jesus' teaching is all true. False. Now, I just got done saying that Bar-Jesus was more dangerous because much of what he said was actually true. Right? Why was much of what he said... Why, do I, why would I say that? Well, there's a, there's a few different reasons. One, I already said, because he's a Jew, and so his knowledge of the truth is very clear. But there's another reason, and that is this little throwaway comment in the passage where it says that the proconsul was an intelligent man. Okay? Now, if Bar-Jesus, the magician, this, this twister of truth, did not have truth at all, at all, at all, then the proconsul would not have been misled by him. But it's clear that the proconsul has been misled by him because why? Well, because Bar-Jesus is part of his entourage. He's in his court, if you will. So this wise man, this intelligent man, the proconsul, has as a hanger-on... This twister of truth. Let's read 
first starting in verse 10 again, Paul speaks to him. He says, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now that's the last part that I want you to see. What he's doing is he's making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. There again, you have an indication that he is proclaiming part truths. But he's making them crooked. And in making them crooked, what does he end up doing? He ends up making them all false. He ends up twisting them and making them entirely false. Because when we have part truths that are twisted just so, those are the most dangerous of teachings. This is where um, if you think about if you think about conspiracy theories, how many of you have heard a, a new conspiracy theory this year? I've, I've heard probably two or three new ones. Um, I kind of enjoy conspiracy theories. All right, My, the the most recent new one that I heard somebody told me to look it up. I haven't, in spite of enjoying conspiracy theories, I haven't gone and looked this one up, but. The conspiracy theory that I was told I should go look up was that uh, that um, uh, what's his name? Uh, crud. Oh man, singer, black singer, blind black singer. Ray, Ray, yeah, Ray Charles wasn't blind. So Ray Charles isn't blind is what I was told I needed to Google, okay? So this is this conspiracy theory, and evidently there's all these, there's all these videos of him doing things like reach, catching things and reaching out and, and doing things that he shouldn't be able to do, shouldn't know that somebody is there. To, okay, so now, why am I talking about conspiracy theories? Well, what conspiracy theories always do is they take some aspect of truth, right, and then they extrapolate on that, and then they, uh, they come to these crazy false end conclusions, right? What defines a conspiracy theory is the fact that it's absurd in its conclusion. I mean, that's the most essential part of of a conspiracy theory is that it has to be absolutely absurd in its conclusion. If it sounds like a conspiracy theory and it seems absurd that the end could be this way, but then it turns out that that was actually what happened, then it's no longer a conspiracy theory, right? It's then a conspiracy <laughs> or a... Um, you know, a, a, a big political blowout happens. You, you know, there, there's all of these things where you, you hear these supposed facts and you think, no, what, really, it couldn't be true. The, the end sounds absurd. The difference between a conspiracy theory and a false prophecy, okay, is that the end doesn't sound absurd with a false prophecy. 
with somebody like Bar-Jesus, what you end up with is a very, very uh, reasonable-sounding conclusion. And this is why the intelligent man, the proconsul, is taken in by Bar-Jesus. And this is why false prophets, false teachers, are so dangerous to us. It is not by our intelligence that we will avoid falling prey to false teaching. you to get that. A lot of you in here think you're really intelligent. It is not by your intelligence that you will avoid it. Okay? Not by your intelligence. How is the proconsul how is how is the proconsul saved from the deceit of Bar Jesus? Not by his intelligence but by hearing the proclamation of God's word by Paul and seeing the power that it had. It says that he believed in verse 12 when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, teaching of the Lord is yet another evidence of the fact that what Paul does is totally okay. All right? It doesn't say he was amazed at the words of Paul. It says that he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. In other words, Paul's response to Bar-Jesus is the teaching of the Lord. Now, what should our takeaway from this be? Well, one of the things that I want you to realize is Bar-Jesus didn't die and then go away with all of his kind back 2,000 years ago. There are still false teachers and false prophets out there today who are taking elements of the truth, who claim to be today Christians rather than Jews, right? Who claim to be Christians and who take elements of the truth and twist them and end up leading souls to hell. And so I don't want you to be surprised when I or Paul or other teachers and elders in Christ's church use strong language to destroy common deceptions and twisted practices. Because that's what our goal is. Our goal is to destroy them, to tear them down in front of you so that you see, just like the proconsul saw, and that you will be amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against principalities and powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so when we fight, we fight as though souls are at stake, because they actually are. 
And if we fight in such a way as to pretend like souls are not at stake, we ourselves become complicit in the, the loss of those souls by winking at those twisted paths and the people who are walking down them. A couple months ago, I was preaching at the Claremont County Jail, and I said that uh, Joel Osteen, I don't know what I said about him. I, I, I might have said that he was a son of the devil. I, I don't know. I, I made it very clear to everybody in the room, not just through my words, but through my tone, through my body language, that every, every ability that I have to communicate, which doesn't just include my voice, right? Every ability that I had to communicate that they should stop listening to Joel Osteen, I used it. I communicated to everybody there. And I don't think that the, that the head chaplain was very happy with me. <laughs> because he doesn't want to raise a ruckus. He doesn't want there to be problems. He doesn't want there to be arguments. He doesn't want there to be fights. Because in a jail, arguments turn to fights very quickly. And so he doesn't want the jail, uh, what are they called? Uh, the, the correction officers, the COs, right? <laughs> he does not want them to have to deal with fallout from this sort of teaching. Now, I say this not to brag, okay, because I got done saying that, and then my time ran out, because I hadn't been paying any attention to what time it was, and then I just had to leave, because they took all the guys out. So there's nothing, there's nothing amazing about me, just to, make, just to make it clear, right? I'm in the middle of preaching, and all of a sudden, I, oh, uh, well, I guess I didn't get to finish that message. It was, it was purely a moment where God used me in spite of my weakness, in spite of my lack of discipline and my lack of preparation. Okay? And yet, <clears throat> praise God, it didn't turn into a fight. Very happy to report. Uh, several of the men there, I think for the first time, began to give consideration to the idea that there might be something to Christianity. Because those men could tell that Joel Osteen was full of it. And it wasn't really their intelligence that showed them that, as much as the fact that they were in jail. And if Joel Osteen's theology is true, then none of those guys would be in jail. Because they would have named it and claimed it and been freed, and, and, and not just been freed, but they would have been rich to boot. And all of their family problems would have ended. And all of the other bad things in their life wouldn't have happened to them. Because what Joel Osteen promises is something that's totally twisted away from God's truth. He takes 
the straight and narrow truth of Jesus Christ and he twists it to to the destruction of souls. One, one young man there was very disturbed that I would condemn Joel Osteen. Oh, I listen to him. I watch him on TV. I'm going to go watch him right now after this. And then the next, you know, a month later, he came into the room and the first thing, he, I want to talk to you about Joel Osteen. He is deceived. And yet he's the only one in that prison that I have met who consistently comes with his Bible every week and who wants to answer questions and who always has very righteous-sounding prayer requests, like that the that God would bless the victims of our crimes. A a wonderful prayer request. But what is he? He's a snake. He's He's taken on the attributes of the people that he listens to. And all of the other guys in the jail despise him because they what they say is, you know, if that's Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it. He's just a snake. He's a two-timing goody-two-shoes who's looking for the approval of men and not a god. What a sad thing for the only guy who has a Bible in that jail, so far as I know, to be that. What he's doing is he is harming the gospel of Jesus Christ and its work in the rest of those men. And that's why he needs to be shut up along with Joel Osteen. And I don't mean that in the sense that we need to uh, harm them in some way or throw them in jail, or or anything along those lines. What I mean is, by the powerful work and word of Jesus Christ, being proclaimed with boldness, those men will be silenced, just like Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus' power was broken by the proclamation of the word of God. And in large part, his power was broken by the simple declaration of who he was. Do you see that? The simple declaration of who he was, and that's what we started out by saying was plain old name-calling. But it's not just name-calling, it is name-giving. In other words, the thing about name-calling is that you, along with being told not to call people names, you also learn, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In other words, 
people who call you names, so what? What does that do? It doesn't do anything to you. And yet, if you are named what you truly are, now something has happened. If you're called a liar because you just got done lying, that's not just getting called a name, is it? That's being given the name of what you are. And so Bar-Jesus is given the name. Son of the devil, twister of the truth. And so much of the time, we, we want there to be a declaration of the word of God without the removal of Bar-Jesus from the court. I've been in this situation plenty of times in conversations with people. Whereas I am proclaiming the word of God, they are saying, yes, yes, and, and, and then they are not agreeing, but rather tearing down the words of God and replacing them with false teachings that are demonic. Now, you may not have experienced this as often as I, but I guarantee you that you have experienced this sort of thing. Almost all of you. Because if you've ever had a conversation with somebody about religion at all, you've experienced this. What they're doing is they, they, they say something to you like, I just think that... Now, if you ever hear somebody say, I just think that, you, you should have your head pop up. And, 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 and it should go like, alert, alert, alert. Why should we be so alert when somebody says, I just think that? I mean, I say that fairly regularly. When I say that, I want you to go, alert, alert. Alert. Because what's going on there is the person who says, I just think that they're appealing to their own feelings and to their own thoughts rather than to the word of God for what they're about to say. Now generally what you hear after somebody says, I just think that, is something along the lines of, I just think that, you know... um, they're, they're, doing, they're doing the best that they can, and they clearly, they're clearly confused, and, and, but I know, they, I know they love God. Or you hear something, well, I just think that, you know, we all, we're all seeking God, and we all come to him and, and, and find him in different ways and by different paths. and Or it'll be something like, 
well, I just think that if we, if we really love one another, then there won't be conflict anymore. Or, well, I just think that, now, have, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on with these kinds of things, but what's going, what I want you to see at the heart of all of those things is that there's an element of truth that's being twisted And it's being twisted to the, to the cost of the word of God being proclaimed accurately. Okay? So instead of the word of God being proclaimed accurately, as soon as something like that is allowed to stand and is not challenged, you have allowed the message to be twisted. It doesn't matter what you just got done saying and how true it was. If you don't actually say at the end of their statement, no, that's not what I said. At the very least, no, that's not what I said. No, that's very different than what I said. What you're allowing them to do is co-opt your message, the words that you've spoken, twist them and hand them over to somebody else who may be standing there and listening. And the message has been darkened at that point. I remember hearing a number of times people talk about bringing their friend or coworker or family member to church for the very first time, only to have that week's sermon strike at the root of what that person believes who's visiting church for the first time. Maybe they're a Roman Catholic. And Roman Catholicism hasn't been mentioned for six months in church. And all of a sudden, there's this sermon that's totally about the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because they called the pastor and said, hey, my Roman Catholic friend is coming. Could you make sure to preach a really hard sermon against Roman Catholicism this week? Would any of you do that? No, you wouldn't do that. You may call and say, hey, my friend is coming this week for the first time. He's coming to church and he's a Roman Catholic. But your hope would be that I wouldn't mention Roman Catholicism in the sermon if you, if you happened to mention that fact that he was a Roman Catholic. Wouldn't it? Most of the time, most of you, I think you'd be like, yeah, I'd really prefer if you would just preach the gospel. Isn't that what we want? Just the good news. A little bit less conflict, a little bit less uncomfortableness. Maybe it's an academic. And the whole sermon is on the wickedness of the philosophies that are promoted by higher education. Explaining them, condemning them. And here's this professor for the first time in church. Now listen, there are two ways to respond to that. This, this may happen to you someday, that you bring a friend to church for the first time, and by God's grace, the sermon is exactly what they need to hear. Now, there are two ways of responding to that. 
One way is to respond with joy. Why would you respond with joy? Well, because it's exactly what they needed to hear. The doctrines of demons that are holding sway in their life have been exposed and obliterated, leaving the teaching of Jesus Christ the cornerstone of our faith. Clear for them to embrace or to stumble over. Right? Isn't that what happens with the with the the stone? Either it becomes our rock of salvation, and we cannot let go, we would never let go, we we would never want to let go of that rock. It's our mountain. Or we stumble over it and it crushes us. What better thing could you ask to happen than for that stone to be cleared of all rubble and set in front of them? For that to happen. But of course, it's tempting for us to think, on the other hand, that it's simply unfortunate. You know, I don't know why this always has to happen. I bring a friend, and I bring my Roman Catholic friend for the first time, and you spend the whole sermon preaching about Roman Catholicism. I just don't get it. None of my friends ever want to come back after, after coming, because you always preach on exactly what the thing that they're most sensitive about. Now, I have not gotten these accusations from you guys, okay, just yet. I haven't gotten them here yet. And so don't, don't hear me saying this in accusation against any of you, but rather in preventative maintenance, if you will. I want you to bring your friends who are not Christians to church knowing for sure that they will be offended. And that that's exactly what they need. They need to hear the word of God proclaimed clearly so that the idols are torn down. Don't go away thinking that it's simply unfortunate when that happens. We cannot have faith in the Lord while we believe in false religions. You you can't have both. We see this in our text. Our idols and our superstitions must be destroyed first. Because until they are destroyed, or until we stop holding on to them, we can never be holding on to Jesus. Because you can't hold on to both. You can't have two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
And so can you imagine how embarrassing this was to the proconsul? Here he was, an intelligent man, in a position of power. He had authority. And he's let this liar pull the wool over his eyes. He lets him hang about in his court and lie to other people and pull the wool over their eyes. And what does Paul do? Paul smashes him. He smashes his false teaching. He smashes his intentions. He lays it all out there clear for everybody to see. There's nothing but pieces left of this this big edifice that had been built up by Bar-Jesus of deception. If you read The Lord of the Rings, you, you remember the story where Wormtongue, the part, of, the part of the story where Wormtongue is revealed for being like Bar-Jesus, for being a false counselor and a deceiver, nothing but the most evil, wicked, slimy character there is, perverting truth, perverting good counsel, to the destruction of the king and his kingdom. And this is exactly what Bar-Jesus is. So if you can see it with Wormtongue, then you need, to, you need to get out of fantasy land and into reality and see that this happens in reality and that souls are at stake, not pretend kingdoms. Don't be embarrassed by your pastor preaching in power with the Holy Spirit smashing your idols or those of your friends and family. Don't be afraid to bring them to church, knowing that that will happen. Don't put pressure on the pastor, the teacher, the small group leader to avoid certain topics. The outcome of avoiding is that the doctrine of demons is left in place, deceiving. So the only choices. And the outcome of preaching that names names is that it becomes clear where the real power is. The proconsul saw what had happened, and he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And God uses that to make the proconsul believe, to save him from the lies of Bar-Jesus. We can't believe the truth until the lies are exposed and destroyed. Think about the stone. I was talking about Jesus being the rock, the foundation stone, the cornerstone of our faith, right? And think about people coming in and, and hearing the preaching and, and it happening to be about their idol. Okay? Why does that make us so uncomfortable? 
It makes us so uncomfortable because we don't like the risk. We, we don't like the risk. Just like the jailers didn't like the risk that a, fr- that a fight may break out, right? So we don't want the risk of, well, there's all kinds of risks, right? <laughs> the risk that our friends will be upset at us for bringing them to church. The risk that we'll have to have hard conversations with them. The risk that they'll ask us questions that we don't want to have to answer. The risk that they'll simply be angry and never come back. And really, the risk comes down to the fact that we're, you know, we would rather, we'd rather leave that rock sort of encumbered by lies. We'd rather leave that rock sort of off, out to the, you know, out of the way and hope that maybe someday they find it on their own And that somehow at that point it'll be less likely that they would trip over it and that it would crush them. Isn't that really ultimately what our fear is? Our fear is that if we make the choice clear and then they say, no, I reject the truth, I reject Jesus Christ, I reject God and I reject faith and I choose to live for sin. Then it's over and done, right? But here's, here's some hope for you, okay? Yes, it's risky. It's risky to put that choice to them, to make it clear that they have to choose one or the other. Yes, that's risky. But if you don't put it to them, there's no risk. They will continue in the lies on the path to hell. So that's the first thing. This is a risk that we're taking for the possible benefit. And the second thing is, I don't want you to think that just because they reject at that moment that God is not capable of bringing them to salvation in the future. Do you understand? That's so... It's so easy for us to give up hope. It's so easy for us to to think, well, they chose, they actually chose. You know, I was trying to delay that moment where they actually chose and wait until they were more inclined to follow Jesus. But they've already chosen. If they're not following Jesus, they're already not following Jesus. And often, God uses these kinds of sermons, these kinds of messages, these kinds of conversations that you ought to be having with them years later. Years and years later, they'll remember that conversation where their idol was destroyed before their eyes. And even if they spent the next 15 years trying to pick up the pieces and put it all back together, They've seen it for what it is. And regularly, God uses those seeds. 
maybe watered by you, maybe watered by other people, maybe you never see this person again. And this last week I heard in particular a story about somebody asking for the phone number of a pastor who had put that choice before them and said, know this, as they were leaving. What you are choosing if you walk away is not a different way of following God. You are choosing to reject God. You are choosing to reject his church. You are choosing to reject his salvation. Oh, boy. Was her friend angry at that pastor? Why didn't you give him more time? Why didn't you? The choice is not the problem. And now years later, asking for the phone number of that pastor. Why? Well, because they never forgot, did they? That moment when the choice was made clear and they saw Christ or I die. This is the message. It's the message of hope. It's the message of the apostle to the Gentiles, people. And it's described as the word of the Lord. This is what we have. Don't be ashamed of it. Speak it with confidence. Trusting that by the power of the Holy Spirit, some, some will be saved. Let's pray.